0: So, I once tried to get an organisation to change their contact centre metrics from average call waiting time to number of human lives wasted. Yeah. So to try and say, well, if you total up the entire time people have spent on hold to you right the way through the year, how does that convert into kind of human lives? Just to really try and bring home the point that you should want to be good, it's good for people. Like this is a bit of the problem with where we've got to. It shouldn't be a delighter to say, I can phone up a company and they answer the phone and they answer a question. And that should be base level experience, but it feels like a real achievement now if you manage to if you manage to do that. Eighty five percent of people believe that organisations now have lost that human touch. Eighty three percent believe that organisations take customers for granted. Eighty one percent believe that organisations are more interested in cutting costs than creating a great experience, which are pretty damning statistics. You have to have that culture of empowerment and freedom to try things and let your people be people it's much better for colleagues in terms of their own motivation it's much better for customers as well
1: on today's episode we'll be talking to the managing partner at the foundation and author of the human experience john seals We'll be talking about customer experience success stories, the advancements of AI, the balance of the functional and human experience, alongside asking the question of whether customer loyalty truly exists. Enjoy the episode, and if you do, subscribe to our YouTube channel for more episodes. This episode has been brought to you by ACF Technologies, global leaders in customer experience management solutions. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome back to the CX Insider Podcast. I'm your host Octavian and I'm joined by Alex, my co-host. And we have a special, special guest that goes by the name of John Sills. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, your career and your customer experience journey?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Really nice to yeah. meet you properly and to be here. And yeah, I mean, I suppose my, my journey starts for most people kind of a long time ago. I started off in a market stall in Essex I talk about a little bit Mm. in in the book and that was when I was 14 I kind of got roped into helping someone out on their market stall and found I really enjoyed it really enjoyed being with customers and serving customers seeing real people having conversations with 50 different people every day and then from there I guess it's one of those things you look back on your career in hindsight but almost every job I've done since has been in some way related to customers so you know I went from there and did some kind of Saturday jobs and week jobs at shops joined HSBC I was there for 12 years first half of that was frontline in branches so again face to face with customers stamping checks losing money down the backs of drawers ended up being a branch manager during the financial crisis which was kind of interesting and exciting and terrifying and scary at the same time but you learn a huge amount about humans and people and how people work and react in different situations. And the one thing I said I'd never do was go and work in head office. And so uh, in 2010, uh, I got persuaded to go and work in head office. I yeah. thought it looked really dull and boring, but actually, you know, you realize oh, you've got 10 million customers, you've got the chance to try and help them. So launched our first mobile app there and then said, well, the one thing I won't do now is go and work globally because I want to stay in the UK. And then I got persuaded to go and work globally. So I ended up looking after customer experience for HSBC Group. And then my final big decision that i got wrong was to say i'm never going to be a consultant and in 2015 i decided i was going to go and be a customer experience consultant and now i'm managing partner at the foundation and 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 have been there for a while so you know all the way through really in my career i've either been frontline with customers delivering the experience i've been working in strategy and innovation teams creating the experience um, and now i work with other businesses to help them improve the experience as well and i think it's all because I just get really really annoyed by bad customer experience so i've just found a way to get paid to moan about bad customer experience and try and improve it really so that's kind of my journey i think from from the start to now
1: i can tell that you hate bad customer experience on your instagram linkedin
0: it's just so yeah i mean I, I suppose i find the writing and the instagram like just really cathartic mm. uh because it's just so annoying and i think what what really annoys me about it is this is people's lives and time you know and there's one thing about things going wrong by accident and that happens But when you come across an organization that doesn't care, you think, well, you're having a real impact on people's lives. I once tried to get an organization to change their contact center metrics from average call waiting time to number of human lives wasted. So to try and say, well, if you total up the entire time people have spent on hold to you right the way through the year, how does that convert into kind of human lives? Just to really try and bring home the point that you should want to be good. It's good for people. But they they backed out at the last minute. But yeah, I do find that I'm now cathartic for other people because if other people have a bad experience, they now get in touch with me and tell me about it. So I've got a kind of agony uncle thing going on as well. But yeah.
1: Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do with the foundation as a partner?
0: Yeah, definitely. So it sounds a bit like a cult, doesn't it? The foundation. Yeah. Maybe it is and I'm part of it. I know. Uh, yes, yeah, so we've actually been around longer than, than, than I've been there. So we've been around since 1999, so 24 years now. And we're an independent consultancy. We're based in London, work around the world. And we exist to help create customer-led success. So we work with organizations of all shapes and sizes on their kind of customer strategy, so, you know, what are they, how they're actually going to try and earn more customer decisions in their favor on their customer experience. So how are you actually going to deliver that practically for customers, whether that's through the design of your journeys or through the training that you're delivering to your people. And then we work on culture as well. So how do you actually, this is the biggest question, the biggest challenge. How do you set an organization up to do this systematically and repeatably in a way that's commercially successful? Because being customer led, it's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do. Um, most people in most organizations want to do the right thing for customers, but yet organizations don't end up working in that way. And so that's a big part of our job is working with those organizations and their leadership teams to kind of go, right, culturally, how do you get closer to customers? How do you stay customer-led? How do you turn that into a commercial success? So that's a lot of the work that we do. And as I say, yeah, we work across all industries. We've got a brilliant team of interesting people from different perspectives and backgrounds and, I get to spend a lot of time hanging out in strangers' homes, asking them <laughs> awkward questions with their permission, and um, and that's great fun too. Yeah.
1: So you've recently published a book uh, that goes by the name of "The Human Experience," which is right here, and I want to know more about it. Can you tell the audience about it? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, yeah. So the book the book came out in February. Uh, it was published by Bloomsbury. I started. First time in the idea for the book about four or five years ago, I was on holiday with my wife and my son in the UK and we had a day out on one of those beautiful old steam trains. And you'll kind of know the type, I mean, like deep leather seats you can fall back into and oak panel table you can spread your food out on. and Someone coming down the aisle handing out kind of home-baked goods. And my, my son turned to me and he said, oh, daddy, is this what it's like when you get the train into London every day? And so I kind of thought about it and laughed. And I was like, well, no, like emphatically, it's not yeah. like I'm lucky to get a stranger's sweaty armpit and a cold, wet panini or something. If you and even get on that train. If you can even get on the train. <laughs> or yeah, if it which gets cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it did get me thinking. So I was thinking, well, this train's like, 40 50 60 years old isn't that interesting that for all this amazing new technology we've got surely the sign of progress is that you make things more efficient and more cost effective but you keep the level of quality at least the same if not improving it and making it better and it started to feel to me like maybe in the past 20 years particularly with all this incredible digital technology we've had arrive that while, while we've kind of improved and focused on improving the functional experience So being able to do more things, more ways, more quickly, more cheaply than ever before. Actually, it felt like organizations have done that at the expense of the emotional experience, of the human experience, of building that real connection with customers. And ultimately, that's the thing I think that really matters, which is how you make people feel. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll go and write a book about that. And I thought, I was go and check. It wasn't just me that thought it and, it. and it wasn't. I went and did a study and you know, 85% of people believe that organizations now have lost that human touch. 83% believe that organizations take customers for granted. 81% believe that organizations are more interested in cutting costs than creating a great experience, which are pretty damning statistics, really handy. If you've just written a book, they're great at prompting yeah. <laughs> it,
1: but
0: that was really the, the, the point of it. And I just had that moment in a shower, like a lot of people do about kind of human and humanity. And I thought, well, that's the thing actually, that I think is trying to describe and bring together everything I'm talking about, that it is, mm. you know, organizations have kind of become full of humans that aren't allowed to act in that human way. You know they're very restricted by processes and procedures and that's causing a real a real problem. That's really where the idea of the book came from. And then I have been writing, I write a newsletter as I think you know. Yeah, so yeah. I've been writing that for for quite a few years and I thought, you know, actually I can collect together some of those stories and shape the book. And, and if it never works out that way. It turned out it was a lot harder to write than I thought. And I wrote it two or three times in the end. But that was the principle of it. Brings some of those stories to life. Show people, remind people what this is really like, but then use that to be able to make this point about, you know, we need to refine, refine that human experience uh, that I think we've lost in the past 20 years. Is that, is that all also
2: kind of the basis of your work, how you try to work through the different, let's say, culture change that you're trying to achieve?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it is in a way. At the foundation, we never really talked about human experience before explicitly. But we did talk a lot about just being human, because what happens is in organizations, we all see the world from the inside out. Like as individuals, we all see the world from the inside out. We're all closer to our own colleagues, our own business, our own regulator, our own policies, procedures, profits than we really are to our customers. And so it's very easy in organizations to kind of have that inside out view, start to dictate your decisions and what you're going to do every single day. And, and I guess what we then saw as that is that kind of exhibits as a lack of humanity. And you'll know what I mean. Like you'll go to the pub tonight and you'll have a normal conversation using normal words with real people. And then the next day you go into an office and uh, you walk through the doors or you open your laptop and all of a sudden we start speaking a different language. You know, we, we write emails that are far more formal We say things in ways we would never normally say. You have meetings with colleagues that you just wouldn't speak in that way before. You write things for customers that are in a very formal language. We forget all that humanity. It's like we have a temporary kind of, you know, like men in black where they flash the light in front of your eyes and all of a sudden you forget what it's like. Like Literally 10 minutes before on your way to work, you've just been a customer in a coffee shop and you know how annoying it was to be in a big queue and have expectations set. And yet then 10 minutes later, you're going to the organization and people will make decisions that are going to cause those exact same issues for people. In the book, I talk about a letter that my nan got sent, my grandma got sent oh, yeah, uh, yeah. in, uh, in 19, um, 1961 when she joined the London Telephone Exchange. And and the letter was from the CEO on the first day, and it basically said "Look, you've got to remember what it's like to be a customer. Like, you know the difference between service giving grudgingly or service giving gracefully, and essentially just reminding people, just remember you're a customer. So so whilst we weren't specifically talking about the human experience, a lot of our work is how do you reconnect people with that outside-in view of the world? You know, see the world from the outside in, remember what it's like to be a customer. We get leaders to go and spend time with customers to really help them remember and reconnect with what really matters. And that forms the foundation of a lot of
1: what we do. So what has happened to CX in today's day and age? Do companies really go out of their way to ignore the human experience? Or is there more than meets the eye when it comes to actions businesses take that impact customer service?
0: In a sense, I don't think organisations are making a conscious choice to turn away from the human or the emotional experience. I think people would say they think it's important. I think they lose sight of the fact they're not doing it. Because, you're right, it's much easier to focus on the tangible output of big numbers and big profits. And if you've got shareholders there, then the easiest thing to measure every week is the share price and the profit number. It's much harder to measure the direct impact of making things better for customers. I talk in the book about the myth of return on investment and about how in a lot of customer experience situations or or initiatives, People are asked to prove the value of what this customer experience initiative is going to create, what revenue it's going to create, but the reality is bad customer experience is really expensive to provide, mm. but they tend to be looked at at different halves of the balance sheet, so they don't necessarily get seen, And so people take actions that seem to make sense but actually end up costing you money. That's that principle of failure demand. The demands that are put on your services as a result of people not doing things right the first time or customers having to phone you up because the app didn't work properly, for example. Mm. It's definitely a big issue that people presume they've got to focus on these logical numbers, but that misses a huge part of the experience that could actually make them more profitable and more cost effective.
1: So we've discussed the myths of ROI, but let's dive further in, hearing a story from John's work with HSBC.
0: When I worked at the the global team in HSBC, one mm-hmm. of the things we did was a global complaints review. So we wanted to look at we were working across 20 different countries, 20 different markets. We wanted to look across how each of those markets dealt with complaints. And all of the markets had a measure for how quickly you acknowledge the complaint. And all of the markets had a measure for how quickly you respond to the complaint. Mm. Which makes logical sense, to your point about that. It makes logical sense, and that's what the regulator was asking. And so the bank were about to spend quite a lot of money on like a whole transformation of how we were going to do complaints to make it quicker to respond to complaints and again it makes logical sense but when you went to speak to customers and you found out what really mattered to them most customers said well actually within reason i don't mind how long it takes to resolve the complaint as long as you've kept me up to date and i feel like when you respond you've licked into it properly but none of our markets had a measure for how often you keep the customer up to date How often you set their expectations? And actually what we found was rather than trying to juice it down and kind of get the complaints resolved more quickly, all that was doing was creating more repeat complaints. So we found that across the markets, on average, we had a 34% reopen rate for complaints. So we were acknowledging them really quickly. We were answering them really quickly. And then a third of customers were saying, well, I'm not happy about that. Mm -hmm. And then they just come back again. But those would be recognized on a different list. So no one ever connected those together. That just looked like more complaints coming through. And what you realized is rather than spending all that money trying to make the complaint process quicker, all you needed to do was just say to people, right, every couple of days, just give your customer a call or an email, just tell them you're still on it and take longer, take a week longer if you want to look into it rather than doing it quicker. It'll cost us less, it'll be more cost efficient, but crucially you'll have less reopened complaints because customers will be more satisfied and customers will believe that you've looked into it properly as well. So we ended up scrapping that program, saving a whole load of money on that making things a bit slower, customer satisfaction went up, complaint reopens went down, but it just took that kind of different way of looking at it that wasn't just looking at the pure numbers, which, yeah, logically, functionally makes sense. But when you look at it from a customer's perspective, you can find all of these little things you can do that can improve the experience and be better for you commercially as well. It's
2: weird how much you don't know your customer once you actually get to listen to what they think, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it's so easy to... You know, this is great saying, isn't there, about treat the customer how you want to be treated. It's a really dangerous thing. In that example, if you're an executive in the bank and you're earning £250,000 a year and, you know, you've got a premier account and a relationship manager and, you know, someone that drives you everywhere and maybe a PA that helps doing it. You're so disconnected from the majority of your customers. You have to work really hard to remember what that's like or to reconnect with customers. If not, you just get the data. You're just starting to look at the data. And the problem with the data is twofold. One is it's often focused on averages rather than actuals. So you're being given a picture of an average experience that no one is really having rather than looking at the 10% of people who are having a brilliant experience and showcasing that and the 10% of people that are having an awful experience and... Look at what you do with that. And the second problem is that all of this data coming into organizations is presented on PowerPoints and PDFs. So, you know, people are more likely to question the methodology than accept an inconvenient truth. That, you know, if something comes up on the screen they don't like, they'll say, well, was that the right sample size? Or was something else going on at that point that got in the way? It doesn't give you the conviction needed to get into action. That only comes from real visceral connection with real people. That's what helps to re-engage you and connect you. That's how you stay outside in and that's how you understand and unpick. I mean, I've got hundreds of stories of things we've done at the foundation where we found out those kind of things where you thought one thing and customers, when you went to spend time and you, you realized there was a completely different option you could take. And nearly all of those examples were more cost effective for the organization. But it was just because, yeah, leaders disengage and disconnect from what really matters to people. So
2: within your book, you mention loyalty and feedback as myths within the customer experience real? Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what you mean about that?
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. So basically, so, so the myth of customer feedback, we, we're kind of in this world where we've never had more customer experience and customer survey data coming into organizations than we have right now. And again, that kind of makes sense. You want to know what happens to your customers, you go and ask them a question about it. But the problem is nearly all of that data coming into organizations is at the thin end of the wedge. So if you imagine your customer's life as this kind of wedge shape, then on one end, you've got their real world and their real life, their hopes, dreams, ambitions, the things that really matter to them, the challenges they've got, the things that get in the way, the services they use to help. And then right at the thin end of the wedge is you and your organization, you know, the things that your role in their lives, but nearly all of these questionnaires and surveys are at the thin end of the wedge. What do you think about us? What do you think about our product? What do you think about our service? Would you recommend us? So this deluge of data is all very inside out. It's all about the business. It's not about the customer. And the problem is, and the reason it's a myth and the reason it's a dangerous myth, is that having all this data, it convinces leaders that they're close to what matters to customers. Whereas in truth, they're only close to customers' opinions of their business. It's a very subtle but a very significant difference whether you really understand your customers and can work out how to be useful to them, or whether you just understand what they think about you. And even then, it's only the people that could be bothered to reply. That data coming in stops leaders going to really connect with customers because they believe they are connected because every week they get a thousand surveys coming in so it convinces them they are close but they're really not and it gets in the way of doing it so that's why it's a myth because that myth of feedback suggests that as you increase your volume of surveys you're understanding your customers more and it's simply not the case it creates an illusion that you are and actually you're not that was the first of the myths the the second of the myths is the myth of customer loyalty and this is the one i've had the most pushback on since the book came out in february Mm. um which makes it sound like hundreds of emails. It's not it's like three emails. <laughs> One from my sister because she didn't understand it, you know. Um, but I don't. I don't believe customer loyalty exists as a concept, really. Where I live, we've got a local taxi firm called Nils, and they're great. They're local taxi firm, loads of cars, low prices. But you could never pay by card. You could only pay by cash, and you never knew where the car was. It was always just around the corner, you know. Whenever it was late, mm. it was always just around the corner. So then this service called Uber appeared. You might have heard of it. And all of a sudden, there was this service at arrived, loads of cars, low prices. I could pay by card. And I knew where the car was because it was on the map. And that was more useful to me than Nils. So this service I'd been using for years overnight, I just stopped using it. And I started using Uber instead. The only problem with Uber is you couldn't pre-book. So you still had to be on demand. And that was a bit unsettling if you live a little bit out of London. About a year later, Nils bought out their own app. So my local taxi company bought out its own app, and now I had a service that was local, loads of cars, low prices. I could pay by card. I knew where the car was, and I could pre-book. So overnight, I stopped using Uber, and I started using Neils again. Now, it might be that I'm just not a very loyal person, but for me, what we're talking about is usefulness. Right? As an organization, and you'll know this anyway, because it's you know we all know it inherently, organizations, you need to stay more useful to your customers than the competitors or the alternatives. And if you do, your customers will stay with you. And if you don't, your customers will go elsewhere. It's kind of that simple. There's no inherent loyalty within that. Now, where you do get loyalty is in friends, family, communities. So, you know, some of the football clubs, for example, that have gone into administration recently, Mm. you'll often see the whole community come out to support them. They'll help clean the stadiums. They'll help raise money, whether they like football or not. Even when, you know, we're trying to raise all this money for the football clubs, You don't see that outside wall with some BHS and some of these shops and Debenhams when they're going because they've just stopped becoming useful. Now, there there is a version of usefulness, which is about psychological usefulness. So, you know, what that brand says about you. So that's where, like in an Apple or a Tesla example, you might be prepared to pay more for a product that's not necessarily better than something that's half the price because that brand represents something about who you are to the outside world. And so there's an element of psychological usefulness in there. But even that is not loyalty, because even that, if you look at, I don't know, say Tesla, for example, say, for example, the owner of Tesla went and did something silly like buying a social media company and then set about systematically destroying it and showing the world he was a horrible person and a terrible manager, that might suddenly make Tesla seem a little bit less cool than it was six months ago. And actually their share price from the point Musk said he was going to take over Twitter uh, has kind of plummeted as a partly as a result of that as well so it's a, it's a kind of a long answer to your question but the principle is that that loyalty doesn't really exist but that leaders in organizations use loyalty as a shorthand to talk about usefulness and that's maybe okay but the reason it's dangerous is because if leaders believe that their customers are loyal then they stop trying to impress them they focus on acquisition and onboarding bringing customers in at the start and then they take them for granted and just kind of presume they're going to stay and then, of course, they don't stay and they go. And again, that's bad financially because you're focusing all this money, like banks do it all the time. We'll pay you £250 to come and join us. They don't put in any effort at all to then create a great service to help keep the customers longer term. So it's just going out the other side. Two of the the three myths that I talk about and I think that they're the, the, the reason they matter is because they really change the behavior of leaders and organizations and then drive decisions they're making away from what would be a much better decision for customers in the business you should never settle in a way with your <laughs> you customers. Never, never settle never take it yeah you should you know i can't remember who you said said but, you, but you've got to rewin your customer every single day guy sing watson who's the founder of Riverfoot, one of the people i study in the mm. book he talks about this and he, he says you know i, I mean he, he swears a lot so he's actually he's brilliant to interview <laughs> but then very hard to write down what he said because you, you can't write a lot of it down he said you know he 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 was just exasperating. He said, "I can't understand if leaders in businesses aren't spending at least a day a week with their customers, what on earth are they doing that's more important?" And when he says it in such a simple terms, you think well, he's right. Of course, he's right. But yet, when you know I work with organisations, and you say to the leaders, "Right, we're going to get you to go and meet customers," he's like, "Okay, let me see when I can fit that in my diary. And maybe in three weeks' time for an hour, because I've got all these other internal meetings taking priority." And it's a real indication of how businesses work because, of course, if your business depends on customers making decisions in your favor, then, of course, you have to spend time with them. Surely you have to spend time with them. So, so yeah, it, it's, it's a, real, a real example of that, really, of seeing how if you're not close to your customers, you just take them for granted. And you have to remember that no one cares about your business as much as you do, ultimately. Mm.
1: There are lots of implementation examples of leaders thinking about end goals rather than thinking about how to get to that goal, with short tenures and constant changes in management. But what has led to such high organisational turnovers in recent years?
0: I think there's there's something very particular happening at the moment in the last 10, 15 years that's driving a lot of this, this kind of perfect storm. Part of it is this distrust in business. And I think we've got a new generation coming through now who probably became adults around 2008, 2009 and came into this world of huge distrust for businesses. I think that's kind of affecting things. But alongside that, this real short termism. So CEO tenure is dropping and dropping and dropping. So you're starting to get CEOs and executives that are going into the role for two or three years. And really that drives a behavior that says, I want to get in the role. I want to deliver something quick, get something on my CV before I move on again. That's not how you build a sustainable business or economy. You do that by having long-term thinking, long-term vision, long-term decisions that are really sustainable and that requires leaders that are enrolled for you know five six seven eight i mean some of the great organizations you look at the likes of apple tim cook steve jobs microsoft you know general motors etc. some of the brilliant organizations they have ceos that are there for 5 10 15 20 25 yeah. years you've got a real long-term vision and so can weather the storm so many organizations are struggling at the moment because of that quick turnover of tenure and that means these bad decisions get made because they're not there to see it through. They're not bothered about what it looks like at the end.
1: So many organisations in all sorts of fields. You mentioned football. Even in football that happens. Yeah. Where yeah. managers might stay for a few years, one or two years. Like you say, football a great example. Like yeah. Arsenal
0: are a good example where Mikel Arteta came mm. in. It wasn't a great start. Arsenal were bottom of the league, lost three games in a row. And at that point, the owners offered him a new contract. Yeah, which I thought showed incredible belief. And then they've gone on to do really well. The England cricket team with the kind of, well, not so great at the moment, but with the basketball, the coach came in and said, I want you to attack. And if you attack and you get out, you won't get dropped because you're doing what I ask. And the first two or three games, people thought, well, that's not true. If I get out playing a stupid shot, I'm going to be dropped. Yeah, But then people weren't dropped and it gave them this incredible belief and confidence and clarity about the singular thing they were being asked to do. And so then they went on this incredible run and did win the World Cup of playing fantastically because they had that long-term vision of this is what we're trying to achieve and this is what we're going to do. And so you can see it translate through so many industries but back into organizations that if you don't have that long-term ambition, strategy, leadership, you can't build anything. And that's why you get football teams like Man United at the moment that are basically like four or five different managers, players bought in and they've got no vision, no structure, no way of working together. So how are you ever going to create a successful team like that? Chelsea in exactly the same position yeah. at the moment. But you've got to hold firm. You've got to have leadership that can hold firm and weather the storm because you will get criticized mm. rather than just bowing to that kind of short-term
2: pressure. You need to allow mistakes at a certain degree, I guess, to enable people to learn
0: and yeah. move on that. And, mm. yeah. you've, got to, you've got to make mistakes. You've got to, you know, you've got to fail. You've got to get stuff wrong. You've got to try different things, both at an organizational level, but at an individual level. So Alan Riley at Chiltern Railways, you know, he said that when when new members of staff, every new member of staff that joined, he'd go and meet them. And he'd say to them, right, your singular job is to make the decisions that are right for customers. That's what I want you to do. You won't get all the decisions right. And if you do things that aren't quite right, then I'll come and have a chat with you and I'll help you understand what could be better and you're going to go again. But his view, and it's the same with John Roberts at AO.com, his view was I'd rather people were being human and trying to make things better for customers and making honest mistakes that we then need to coach around than everyone kind of locking down, hiding behind process, doing things they know aren't going to make customers happy for fear of getting it wrong. You have to have that culture of empowerment and freedom to try things and let your people be people. It's much better for colleagues in terms of their own motivation. It's much better for customers as well in terms of the experience they get. And I think if we could all be a bit more human, you're still gonna make mistakes, but at least you're making a mistake trying to do the right thing rather than, uh, rather than because you're sticking to a process.
1: We are now in the age of artificial intelligence with organizations implementing processes driven by AI. Through John Seal's research, what is the perception of interactions with humans versus AI? And how will it help employees deliver a positive experience?
0: It's It's a really interesting question. And it's one that, I answer with full expectation that I'll be completely wrong in the next four or five years, you know, because you just you just don't know exactly what it's gonna look like and, and it's gonna come from it. I think for me, AI is gonna be such an important role in the future of customer experience in people's lives, particularly I think with customer experience in how it's gonna help support colleagues give a better experience to customers. So I see the AI AI's role far more almost like back office helping get answers quicker give better quality answers maybe write better emails or say some things that are a bit better you can do a lot more coaching on the job with that kind of support there you know I've seen some studies that suggest that uh, it's at the moment in contact center teams where AI has been used it improves the overall customer experience and the overall accuracy for new members of the team by up to 20 percent for experienced members of the team it doesn't make any difference at all. So it suggests their AI can be used to help train and coach people to get them up to a good level. But once they're up to that good level, they're good without without the AI. And Zendesk have been doing some really interesting stuff recently. It's worth looking at Zendesk's recent AI drop about three or four weeks ago with some of the new tools and technology they've got coming through. Having said that, I do still think that humans will want to speak to humans, particularly if they're angry or there's a problem. Because I think there's this naturally human thing, and you can tell me if you agree or not, If you've got a problem with a company or there's something you're unhappy about, you kind of want to speak to someone and make sure that you've been heard by another human. So I think we all do that thing where, you know, you phone up and while you're on hold, you've kind of got this 30-second script that you've prepared in Mm -hmm. your head that says, when someone answers, this is the points I want to make. And you don't want to be interrupted. You just want to kind of get it out there. It's quite cathartic. This is the problem. This is everything I've been through. And all you need is that other person to go, I hear you. I understand. I'm going to help you put it right. Even if that person then goes and uses AI to go and put it all right, even if you could have got the same answer just by doing it on the website, I think there's a human need to be heard by another human when they're in a moment of particular difficulty. And I don't think people would accept just going to an AI to do that. Part of the reason I also think that is because everyone likes to think they're unique. So I like to think that my problem is different to your problem and different to your problem. At an organizational level, they might go, well, yeah, we've got, 50,000 problems each year and they're all exactly the same. But that doesn't matter to me because I want to feel like mine's unique. And so it's going to be really interesting. They're making my point where the AOA is so good. That really is a minimum. But yeah, I, I do think there's an innate human thing in the same way that Lot of people still want to use the phone.
2: I was gonna say it's not for me. It's not just between AI and the human experience. Like sometimes you can send an email, but you prefer to get that person on a call just to see their reaction, just to get that feeling of how much effort are they gonna put in mm. this and so on.
0: Especially as yeah. you said, when there's a problem or an issue. I completely agree. Some great data by BT the last few weeks in the BT Autonomous Customer Report it's called and it showed that seventy percent of customers still prefer to use the phone, but it's the channel that they're currently least satisfied by. Because organizations are trying to pump money into all, in all the others. And, it, and it, you know, so I told to a story. I wrote a story about it a couple of weeks ago when I was, um, my mum was ill a couple of years ago. And I had to very quickly find out whether or not I could drive her car. And so I phoned up and it said that my insurance company, I phoned up the insurance company. And, you know, I had to punch in a whole load of numbers. And when I thought I got through to the right place, an automated voice came on and said, oh, you can do this online and just hung up. <laughs> Automatically hung up on me. Did it again, same again. Did it again, same again. Eventually, after fifteen minutes, I managed to get. It was like an escape room. I got the right yeah. code to get through. And I said to the guy that I answered, "Look, I just need to know under my policy, can I drive my mum's car?" And he said, "Well, you know, this is just in your policy booklet." And I was like, but "Yeah, but I'm a normal human, so I don't carry my insurance yeah. policy booklet around everywhere." And he went, "Okay, yeah, you can drive your mum's car. All right." It took fifteen minutes overall. It would have been an incredible experience if I'd phoned up and he'd answered and he just told me the answer. Mm. And the thing is, it would have taken about 15 seconds. It would have saved him a load of time. It would have been a really quick call. My experience, I would have been highly recommending them for being so good. And actually, that shouldn't be a delighter. Like, this is a bit of the problem with where we've got to. It shouldn't be a delighter to say, I can phone up a company and they answer the phone and they answer a question. And that should be base level experience. But it feels like a real achievement now if you manage to If you manage to do that, the reason I'm kind of telling that story is because sometimes the reason you prefer to ask the phone is exactly as you say. You want to feel the other person's reaction, how much effort they're going to put in. Sometimes it's because you want that reassurance of the person on the phone. You know, you want to hear it. Sometimes it's more convenient. So the reason I was phoning him was because I was doing a whole load of other stuff and I had my earphones in and I didn't want to search it. But for me, the biggest point is that sometimes you don't know what the question is you want to ask. Now, I did in that example. But a lot of the time, you know, if if it's insurance or banking or a complicated market, a complicated industry, you, you don't necessarily know. You know the outcome you want, but I don't know the right question to ask. And the answer might be on the website, but it might take me about two hours to find it on the website because I don't really know what I'm looking for. And so speaking to someone and just saying, this is what I'm looking for. I now need you to apply your knowledge of the industry that is much greater than mine to help me get from where I am to where I'm going. Even if that answer is go on the website and look at this specific page that's fine but if you don't know the question you're asking it's really hard to go and search and find out what it is so there's always going to be that role for that and it's, it's my, probably my biggest pet hate actually at the moment is how hard it is to try and speak to organizations
1: yeah so we've talked about the negatives and positives of talking to customer service representatives but what does john think of artificial representatives what does he think about the growth of AI chatbots and the criticism that seems to surround them
0: I feel kind of a bit sad for chatbots, really. I feel like they've been thrust yeah. thrust into the world, but they're yeah. clearly not ready. And don't get me wrong, you know, there's some of the Zendesk, there'll be some amazing mm. chatbots coming. That that will definitely get a lot, lot better. And so I'm quite confident in that. But the bigger question for me is why, how have these chatbots been allowed to be put out for public use when clearly they're not fit for public use? Mm. And again, you kind of go back to what we were saying, you think, surely if a CEO sees that chatbot, isn't able to do that, he go or she go, don't don't let that go out but I think they'll get a lot better and then they'll find a good usefulness but yeah I feel even though they don't exist I feel quite sorry for the (laughs) collective because they're so easy to take the mickey out of.
1: John has advice from very high profile clients like Sky, eBay, Volkswagen, Morrisons and Unicef but what is some advice that John applies to a lot of his clients and are there any interesting stories from any of his clients that he can share?
0: Yeah, I think, I think you know, it goes back to the thing we were saying about the need to see the, the world from the outside in. So repeatedly in all of the clients that we work with, the thing that's most powerful is getting them to firstly go and spend real time with real people to understand what really matters. And secondly, look outside their own industry to what's going on with other industries. You know, I remember I did a, uh, a project with a food manufacturing company a few years ago and uh, the second biggest in the UK and it was about the future of ready meals. Uh, you know the future of convenience food and so with with the ceo we went uh, to interview a lady in her home and then we went shopping with her and we uh, went into her home and she said look i'm never going to use any kind of ready meals or convenience food she was in her 40s yoga instructor you know body is a temple and it kind of checked out in her house she had a whole load of recipe books a whole load of ingredients and so we kind of left and he was a bit disheartened of like oh, i thought she might be but no you know definitely not gonna do it an hour later we went shopping with her in waitrose we're going up and down the aisles and we get to one of the aisles and she throws in a ready-made mashed potato and a ready chopped red onion. And you're kind of, that's interesting because that's not quite what she said, but thought, sort of, you know, should we ask her? And we say, what's that about? And she went, oh, well, I haven't got time to peel and chop vegetables. Like, that's ridiculous. I'm a busy person. And she looked at us like we were crazy for thinking that didn't match up with what she said before. Anyway, so we carry on and we get to the, the end of the supermarket where all the good stuff is, you know, all the chocolate and the wine. And again, we think, well, we're going to fly past here because, you know, body is a temple. But no, no, she swept in a whole load of chocolate, a whole load of Prosecco, white wine. It was like supermarket sweet, you know, everything going in there. And we said, well, how does that match up with, you know, your healthy lifestyle? And she said, oh, that's girls night on a Friday night. That doesn't count. And it was so interesting and interesting for that CEO because what you realized is that's why you have to observe people. and You have to see people because people lie. They don't intentionally lie. But we all tell each other a version of ourselves that we want to be true you know we all tell each other the of good course, stuff yeah. we don't tell yeah. everyone else the vices because we don't even want to admit we have some of those vices not even to ourselves sometimes <laughs> yeah well, we always lie to ourselves <laughs> constantly and sometimes that's useful and sometimes it's not you know and so what we see time and time again is when you get to those customers you find these things again we work with one of the big energy companies gas companies when uh, back in 2018 and they had a big focus on smart meter adoption so the regulator has said every customer's got to have a smart meter in by the end of 2020 and they'd spent they'd done over 50 research reports they'd spent so much money effectively trying to bribe people to take smart meters so we will give you free energy we'll give you vouchers this that nothing worked we went to spoke to customers it's really obvious when we i spoke to customers and they said you don't have to pay me i'm quite happy to have a, a smart meter sounds like good new technology I'm more than happy to do that but if you've got to come and install it for four hours and you can only come and install it between nine and five monday to friday then i'm not going to take it because i'm not going to be at home And if I'm going to be at home, you've got to switch my energy off for four hours while I'm doing it. So if you want me to have it, you've got to come in the evening or the weekend. And they hadn't spent any money on research reports on that or any money on that. And you suddenly realize if you take all of that money you're offering, all that free energy you're giving away and all that bribery and the vouchers, And just put it into a few engineers being able to do evening and weekend appointments. And maybe they take along a generator with them so they can keep your power on instead of your power going off. That's how you get more people to do it. It's kind of Rory Sutherland describes it as uncommon sense. But you've got to get into real people's real lives and then you start seeing these examples everywhere. So that's all of the clients we work with. That's the main thing that we really see and we really do with them.
1: John talks a lot about culture and getting top management to change it, but does this process happen organically within an organisation? And if that's not the case, how can the company and the CEO work on it? I'd probably almost go as
0: far as to say it very rarely happens organically. Unless you're a founder-led business and you keep that founder all the way through, then it often is organic. If not, it needs to be something you really work on, it's like a habit you need to build. It can be top down or bottom up but if you're looking top down from leadership what you're really talking about is belief do you have belief within the organization that being customer-led is going to lead to commercial success and to do that you need to take some big bets so if you look at the story of easyjet between 2010 and 2017 caroline mccall went in as ceo and they were in a pretty bad place in 2010 and so She believed strongly that putting the customer at the heart of your business helps you be commercially successful. And so she looked at the top 10 pain points for customers. And the number one was uh, not having allocated seating. So If you remember, it used to be on EasyJet that you didn't get a seat and you turn up and everyone would just like fight onto the plane and you try and get the best seat that you could. Customers hated it. But the belief in the organization was you can only turn the plane around quick enough and get it back up in the sky if you just let everyone bundle on. Because otherwise, if it takes more than 25 minutes, you start to be unprofitable. So Caroline, you know, went to look at other industries, went to look at Formula One, and the fact that they change all the tyres at the same time. And so they thought, well, what if we board from both ends rather than just boarding through one? And what if we board from both ends? That should maybe not quite, but nearly half the time it takes to, to board the seat. And everyone said well, we can't do that because we're not allowed to board on the tarmac. So they decided to set themselves an objective of finding a way to board, to get customers on the plane and turn around the plane in 25 minutes and get it back in the air by boarding from both ends. And that started by pushing the airports to let them board on the tarmac because they don't own the tarmac, EasyJet. So they got agreement from Gatwick, right, you can board from both ends. And they chose one route and it was up, I think, to Glasgow and back to Gatwick again. And they practiced and practiced and practiced and it took 18 months and everyone was really skeptical. And eventually they did it. They managed to do one flight, one route within 25 minutes, board from both ends, everyone on the plane with allocated seating. And they turned around in 25 minutes. And this was this huge catalyst within EasyJet, this huge moment of belief where they realized they could do really good things for customers and it was commercially successful. So they did the next one, which was business loyalty schemes. They did another one, another one, another one. And over that seven-year period, they just had repeating moments of belief. that built belief in the leadership team, built belief in the organization, ended up doubling their profits, tripling their share price as a result of putting the customer at the heart. Caroline left in 2017. Some of that belief went with her and then they started tipping back down the other side again. And that's why it's such a precious thing that you really need to keep nurturing and keep working at because really you are talking about at an organizational level belief that it's the right thing to do and you have to keep proving that to people because the outside pressures of finance and money are so much more obvious and tangible and so can easily be chipped away. And again, that's what happened with Tesco at the end of their big run as well. So yeah, belief is the big thing you need in organizations.
2: And you said you can do it Bottom up, if you like,
0: what's the role of the management
2: in that case?
0: Yeah, bottom up is about making sure you've got a systematic way of delivering your customer experience. So top down, you're talking about culture and belief, but bottom up is saying, well, do you have a clear vision of what the experience is that you're trying to create? job number one? Do you actually know it? Not an NPS number. Do you have a vision for what you're trying to create? Then how do you prioritize effectively? How do you design and how do you assess the experiences you've got at the moment? How do you measure and how do you measure that links into the vision you're trying to create, not a random NPS number again? You know, and how do you do that in a way that helps you stay connected to customers? So if you put that system in place, you can end up creating a great experience in a customer-led uh, organization through the ways of working and the things you're doing. And again, that needs to be nurtured too. You need a bit of both. The best organizations, customer pioneers have both, but in the absence of leadership, you can build the system. The challenge is, do you have the permission to build the system without the leadership support?
2: Focusing on the touch points and how those
1: work and making them more efficient. So you help out with the Young Enterprise charity. Can you tell us more about the work you do with them?
0: Yeah, Young Enterprise, brilliant charity that I've known since I was about 14 years of age, lots of people that are listening will know them. So they work with uh, secondary schools. And they run programs in secondary schools for sixth formers to build and create their own business. So the point of the charity is to kind of foster entrepreneurial mindsets, enterprising mindsets, you know, entrepreneurial thinking. You don't necessarily get in other parts of your school life. So lots of people when they're 16, 17, take part in the program. It's a big nationwide competition. They get given a tiny bit of money to start with. And then they're told, right, go off, build your own business. You got nine months, off you go. And you get some incredible businesses built as a result of it and some incredible experiences as well. So I've been involved in a number of ways did the program myself at school uh, HSBC were one of the big sponsors so when I was there I helped out at a kind of area and regional level uh, in terms of being a, a business support uh, they're called so people that go in and advise the students doing the businesses and um, then help kind of do some of the judging and now we as the foundation work with their leadership team both in terms of helping them develop as a leadership team, but also helping give them content, I suppose, that they can use to share with the teams of how you build a really good customer-led business. So I love it. It's so energising. It's the best part of my year every year when I get to go to the finals and you see the businesses these 16 and 17-year-olds have created. Real energy, real excitement. And yeah, they're a really brilliant, really brilliant charity to be involved in.
1: And that concludes the end of the episode. Thank you to everyone for listening. I've been Octavian and I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Let us know what you think by carrying on the conversation on LinkedIn. This episode has been brought to you by ACF Technologies, global leaders in customer experience management solutions. Now let's get into some quick fire questions. What's your favourite film?
0: Oh, such a tough question. Depends on my mood. I'm a big fan of Tarantino. Yes, uh, Personally. I really like Reservoir Dogs. I actually, really like Inglorious Bastards. Mm. I think it's a brilliant film, uh, and things like Shawshank Redemption. Although I also really like Wayne's World. I still yeah. got that 90s kid inside me, so I'll probably go for uh, probably yeah, Inglorious Bastards and Wayne's so World. Good. As my so good. So good
1: combination. Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, Tantino's amazing. So, you're an Arsenal fan. Yeah. And I wanted to (laughs) ask you, what is your favourite Arsenal player, past and present? One for each.
0: Uh, so my favourite Arsenal player growing up was Paul Merson because I just loved, he always played with a smile on his face. Kind of played a similar position to why I did, that kind of middle of midfield. Mm. Uh, he scored some great goals. He looked like he was having loads of fun. Obviously, as I got older, I realised why he was having loads of fun. Uh, <laughs> and the drinks and drugs were probably not quite so good. But he's still my still my play- favourite player. Uh, and my current favourite player, that's a great question. I mean, it's, I think it's got to be Saka. Yeah. I think for a similar reason, you know, lovely kid plays with a smile on his face again. Looks like he's enjoying himself. You know, he's such a humble kid as well. There's that clip of him going to ask Beckham for a signature mm. and Beckham saying, I oh, should be get yours. So he's a, he's a we, we call him our star boy at Arsenal. So I think probably him at the moment. Yeah, I
1: think. He deserves that title. You yeah. know, you could tell he's going to be loyal with Arsenal. You could tell well, he's I'm there not, to stay. I, I never say it, but I, I hope. hope so. Yeah. 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 Well, you're an Arsenal fan. Yeah. Clearly Spurs your rival. If you had to... Choose a player from Spurs to take into Arsenal. Who yeah. would it be?
0: I mean, I wouldn't. So I'd be clear. I wouldn't describe Spurs as rivals because they're never close enough to win. Yeah, to, be to be fair, a rival. Yeah. they're more like an annoying little brother. <laughs> um, I I love Son. I think Son's a great player. Mm. Uh, he's the player that whenever we play Spurs, I I really fear him more than I yeah. ever, more than I fear Kane. Even when he was there, for example, Son. I think he's a wonderful, wonderful player. So I would I would take him, and also that would stop Spurs winning so many games. Yeah. As well, so I'd be happy about that.
1: <laughs> What is one thing you're excited about going into 2024? Oh, I've got loads of, loads
0: of things, actually. I'm trying to, I'm not sure if I say this publicly, I'm trying to write a novel. So I'm quite excited mm. about that. It probably won't ever get anywhere, but I'm quite, I just love writing. So yeah, I'm really quite yeah. excited about um, about that as well. From the business point of view, actually, we've got, we got real momentum at the moment. We're doing some really great work. So I'm excited to see kind of what comes from that as well. And obviously excited about Arsenal winning the league. Yeah uh, which is going to happen but yeah I think just trying to do trying to do more writing I think is the thing that I'm really
1: looking forward to mm. um, at the moment. Is there any living person right now that you admire the most? It could be a celebrity it could be someone you'd know. Oh, that's a really tough question on the spot.
0: Living person that I admire this is very ironic, given what we're doing. My mm. one frustration with a lot of um, podcasts and a lot of interviews, for example, is they're with people that are public figures, you mm. know, people that are doing good stuff and have maybe had a bit of luck on their way to get there. And actually, if you look at the Jake Humphrey High Performance Podcast, you know, it's great. He goes and interviews Gareth Southgate, and that's yeah, brilliant. But Gareth Southgate coaching some of the best players in the world, but then. What I really admire is people that are under the radar, everyday people that are maybe trying to manage single parents with three kids, trying to manage two jobs. And so there's people I know in my life that actually I have a lot more affirmation for than any kind of famous people because they're just doing good stuff in their life, enjoying life. They're brilliant parents. They're making a big difference to their kids. And they're the kind of people that I admire more because they don't get any kind of fame or spoils or anything like that. And they're the people actually I would much rather to hear on podcast, hear about, well, how do you do it? Like one one of my... Close Friends is a wheelchair user. He's recently been given an MBE for his services to the police wow. force. You know, yeah. I've got huge admiration for the work that he's done and the way that he does it. So that's my slightly sycophantic answer, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. But that's such it. a good yeah. answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's different.
1: yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, John. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's been an amazing episode. Yeah, thank brilliant.
0: You. Thank you.